I mean, the pressing plants were just so backed up for everybody, weren't they? Unless you were Adele, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, we just, we absolutely knew it would be worth the wait, though. And when we started this project, we all love analog recordings and the limitations that come with that and the warmth of recording to tape. So we record everything live to tape with our band and, um, and always continue we'll continue to do that because we love that warmth and we just felt like waiting for the vinyl for it to be pressed onto wax would honor that warmth because that's another warm sound and having you know we're all record collectors we all love being in the record shop together and we spent many hours doing that and just the idea of not having something on wax for our first record that was just like tear inducing and we were just super lucky that we have a label that's very vinyl focused and also understood that we didn't want to just wait before we could put music out. You know, you get signed, you're all excited and you want to share what you've been working on and you want to make a make a presentation of who you are now in that space and time. And, and so he allowed us to put things out in a nonlinear fashion, which was really great for us. So we were able to put out Forget Me Not and Blow My Mind as our first 45 um, and go from there, really. And when when the record arrived, it was a it was a as our label had said to us, it is a record of what you did <laughs> when you did it. And and it was so fun. It's been so fun presenting it to the world, and we just couldn't believe it on tour. You know, that was our first headlining tour, and we weren't really sure what to expect. We had amazing crowds all the way from the east coast to the west coast. It was truly something to behold. And at one point, I was looking at Nia, and she's looking at Sabrina, and Sabrina's looking at me, who's singing out of tune? And then we realized, we turned to the audience, and it was the audience, bless them, singing along out of tune. (laughs) And it was throwing us off. And It was the first time something like that happened, where we realized, wow, people know these songs, and they have their own personal relationship with these songs, and they're not ours anymore. They're just everyone's, and that was that was really cool. That was a moment for me where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm where I'm meant to be, and I'm happy doing what I'm doing, even if it's hard to pay rent sometimes still. <laughs> you know, you're on the path, and you just, it's, it, that's the gift that you still, still keep chasing, you know. From my perspective, it appears like things happen pretty quickly for you, you know, in terms of, like, actually bringing it all together, the the contributors on the first record are pretty incredible for a debut. That's a community, isn't it, guys? <laughs> yeah, it's our. It's it, we're so lucky that um, that we found this community uh, mostly in Brooklyn, um, Staten Island. Like we found this community and have been actually knowing these guys for a while, and just kind of have been on different projects with them, or just knowing them from supporting another artist or what have you. So we kind of. Uh, I don't know if it's like minds or like energy, like spirits, like, you know, like tastes that kind of draw, drew us together. And we were just so lucky that, um, that they, you know, wanted to, to work with us. And, and we, I think all were inspired by each other and continue to be inspired by each other. So we feel very lucky in that way. It's cool as well because there's three of us and we've all been friends for a long time and we've all been in the city, you know, I've been there now close to nine years and I'm the newest import. So the girls have nearly double, you know, at that time, been here since they were kiddie winks. And um, it just feels like 
you grow up in a space and I was at um, music school here and Sabrina was in loads of bands here. And I was, even when I first arrived, I was in a couple of punk bands with Sal P from Liquid Liquid and that had a whole community. And everybody's kind of struggling, trying to make sense of their art and find their own voice at the same time as trying to, you know, make rent too. And, and you kind of enter into this unspoken world of barter and helping each other and the people that are around you that lift you, you stay with them longer and you, you do vocals on their song or you do some backing backgrounds and you say, no, don't worry about paying me, you know? And then next thing you know, they're giving you a really good rate or, or trading you for something else on your record. And it kind of just, or you play it to your friend and they're like, Oh, let me have a chance to mix this. Or I want to add some production to this. And you're like, no, 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 it's okay. And they're like, no, 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 no please let me have a go. And then they bring it back to you and you're like, okay, that's way better than anything I was going to do. <laughs> and, um, and it just kind of goes like that. <laughs> and I will say, I think, you know, not only the community in Brooklyn, community in Brooklyn, but we've also, you know, roped in our family members um, into completing the record from the artwork to, you know, my sister plays violin on the, um, on the last track called better man. So yeah, it was a real like familial and community effort. For sure. P, you, you bring up an interesting point, and I've heard a lot of people speak on both sides of this. Whether or not, when you're starting it out, whether or not it's a good idea to do things for free, you know, I certainly understand the, you know, feeling like you have to. And I, I did that, you know, as a writer, I did that a lot myself. I, I lose money doing this podcast, so I'm like, I'm definitely very sympathetic to, to that idea. But I've also heard the conversation on the other side that, you know, potentially you could devalue your art if you're giving it away. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's where the element of trust it comes in. You know, I, I really believe, and, you know, a lot of friends that we know, they now have a rule with each other. They say, look, nobody trade anything. You just pay me and I'll pay you. And then there's no kind of blurred lines. And we, we figured out pretty early on um, that it's much better for us to pay something, even if it's a nominal and it's maybe not as much as they would like. It's better for us to find somebody that we can pay what we can afford. You know, they can accept what we can afford. So we also have the right or, you know, don't feel too guilty about saying, uh, can I make these tweaks? Can you come back and you need to make edits and you have a sense of control over how far you can push something. You want to honor people's time. Um, and also you want to honor your own craft and, and such like too. But the trust element for us was that we were working with friends who are really old friends and it felt like a safe enough space for us to be able to do things for trades that were, it was natural. It wasn't so transactional. It was just a kind of a natural evolution of things. And like I said, the friendship came first, but I certainly wouldn't advise young musicians to go around and do things for free. I think that's not good for the whole industry, especially in the city. And I think that, you know, people deserve to be compensated. Otherwise we're a dying profession. And it's important that we're acknowledged, you know, it's so important, you know, other countries having spent five years in France, it was so hard to come to the States and see that there's no arts council, there's no arts funding, and there's no programs that support young musicians who are successful, who might maybe they had five really good gigs at really well paid jobs. And then there's a dry spell in France, they match whatever you had for those months, and they, they give you a baseline, steady baseline of benefits to see you through, because they understand the importance of government's serving the purpose of patronage so that it isn't just of the elite to choose what art looks like and what culture looks like and how diverse that becomes especially in a in a place like america where you know poverty is a race issue too you cannot it's so inextricably linked that you can't escape that 
And so to deny government funding to arts is to say we don't really care about you know, having a diverse representation of art and culture. And we're just going to pick and choose the parts that we want and spit the rest out or consume it for ourselves and absorb it. And I think that's just a travesty. Sorry, I've changed the tone, haven't I? <laughs> Let's get into that. I mean, I, I think what's all also tied to that and, and maybe something that we we don't talk about enough in this context is the way in which social media has trained us to give things away for free, to, to give content away for free, to give songs away for free, to basically to prop up these big corporations. I mean, I think it's up again, it's, is it social media or is it the government's unwillingness to, to step in and, you know, whatever the um, industry has been. And now for us, maybe it is more online and technology focused and social media is a part of that. But, you know, we had we had the need for unions. We have the need for government intervention, always, in my opinion, to help oversee things in a more social democratic nature. To leave things up to like even, to you know, we have something called Ofcom, which is looking after the communications and mobile telephones services in, in the UK. And I was like, so where's the Ofcom? And everyone's like, nah, that doesn't exist here. <laughs> you know, and slowly but surely things are happening. Uh, for me, streaming is a big thing but who who it's not it's not the streaming suspects fault i like to call them (laughs) it's not their fault they're they're private enterprises they're corporate enterprises that are running on a capitalist model that's how they're going to operate why would we expect anything less from them the streaming royalties baseline and the numbers need to be set by governments and that's that's where i see there's a lack of effort being made and i and i i feel like the lobbying isn't as vehement and powerful because people feel more defeated and i think it's really hard to expect musicians to lobby successfully because they're just treading water (laughs) so to ask them to take that on as well without big union support is virtually impossible and um you you want your you want your ASCAPs and your BMIs to step in and help with that and you want some good strong politicians who want to take on the arts as I think it's the same in, in all in most industries now is that the big dinosaurs can't keep keep up with the fast moving pace of technology. So it's like all the laws that can't they're just nowhere near caught up to where they need to be to protect people and to protect the arts and to protect, you know, uh data, our our personal data and all that stuff. It's you know, we're nowhere near that point and hopefully some what sometime soon, you know, I know people are aware of this, but I don't know how maybe people are making companies are making too much money off off of it for them not to to put the laws in place and put the policies in place to protect. I don't. Yeah. So I don't know when that's going to change, but I, I think it's it, it is slowly. But I think in order in our lifetime, <laughs> it needs to be a little more, more dra- you know, drastic or something needs to happen. I think they'll start trading in data markets. Like right now, the company's already doing it. They're selling our data to each other, right? And, you know, Spotify's linked with Facebook and linked with Instagram. And, you know, who's to say what will happen with Twitter now with all that malarkey? But um, there isn't a, a marketplace where us as individuals or consumers or whatever you want to call us can participate in that marketplace. Like, what if we were in control of selling our own data? I'm not saying this is a perfect world, because that scares me too, but maybe that's still more equitable if we actually had a say or a place in the market and we could decide which parts of our data were being sold and whether we wanted to capitalize on that. At least that would 
seem more equitable some sort of hand in it to me but then again you know is that just leading you down the garden path of encouraging more data transaction i want to not <laughs> I, not push back but add to what what naya was saying and and this is partially comes from the fact that i i'm a technology journalist by by trade so i so i cover a lot of this stuff but i, I think you're right in that the government itself can't keep up with innovation. You know, we're seeing that in a lot of places. I see that a lot in patents. You know, they just don't really understand how and what to grant. But I'm also a lot more cynical when it comes to these sorts of things because I look at and I'm gonna, I'm very much gonna this conversation. But there was just the uh, Congress failed to pass. Um, set, what was it? Seven days, seven sick days for rail workers. So I also just think that there's a, there's just a basic level of like human decency that just does not exist in certain circles yeah would agree is there an extent to which um i guess approaching what you do pragmatically involves this understanding that there is a realistic possibility that you might not be able to ever make a real living just on music all i know is that you know the three of us are going to keep creating no matter what for years to come and i've kind of I don't know. I'd like stand strong in that. You know, I think if at the end of the day we need to, you know, still have a little or us little side jobs or side hustles, then so be it. We're still going to keep creating. And, you know, the fact that we get like 0. 0.003 cents a song on streaming, like hopefully one day that'll change. But for right now, like we're still going to keep doing it. If anything, Spotify is like sharing our music with people in all over the world, which is something that we wouldn't have been able to do on our own. So things ebb and flow. Hopefully things change for the better. And hopefully we can do this, you know, as our full-time thing forever and ever. But, you know, I think for me, it's just, I think I'll always, always be creating music no matter what. But also it is different for us, you know, like it's taken us a long time to get where we are. And I I feel we're so, we're the lucky ones because we just came back from a tour and we've had loads of people coming to shows and supporting and buying vinyl and that is so important. We're so lucky that people still want to buy records and that we can make a living on the road doing that and selling our music that way and performing and enjoying and people appreciating and respecting ticket prices. And for us, we feel very lucky that we're on this path where it is, I feel worse for generate like the younger generations, the teenagers who are coming up in the music business who maybe don't understand how they can make a kind of career out of it and, you know, when I was growing up, it was never in doubt that if that's what you wanted to do, you could sustain a good life. And you never imagined you'd have to have more than one job. You just knew it would be hard to get there, but you thought once you got there, it, you'd be okay. <laughs> I feel like Naya has something to say about that. I was going to say, I think the younger younger ones are, are going to figure it out. They're so savvy with the, uh, you know, with the internet and, and selling, you know, with, with I, I think that I think the younger ones have figured out how to how to not have a day job and how to make make their their personalities and sell themselves on an Instagram and TikTok and all. They know they I feel like they as influencers they know how to be influencers and I think that that is really big. It's not necessarily natural for me to do that kind of stuff to to put myself out there like that. And I'm used to just, you know, being on the stage and that kind of thing. But I, I feel like the the younger generation is pretty savvy and 
it just will look completely different. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, good point. It will look completely different. It almost takes a different part of your brain to be able to go up and perform in front of people, you know, versus exposing yourself in this very different way. Like just because you're open and have that thing inside you that lets you stand up in front of people. And like, honestly, singing is one of the most vulnerable things you can do. But that doesn't necessarily translate into, I don't know, being good at Twitter. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't look on Twitter account. <laughs> no, it's been, it has been a learning curve for us. Like, try, you know, just like keeping up with all the social media stuff we have to, you know, keep up with. Yeah, it's, it's we're, we're learning new things every day. You know, over the over the pandemic, I had to learn how to use one of the DAWs, like Pro Tools and Logic, so that we could edit our own vocals. You know, we're constantly like, teaching ourselves how to just get shit done, really. Um, Like video editing, video concepting, just like anything and everything, really. Yeah. And I think an element that that maybe we're we're forgetting about here, too. I mean, you know, Pia alluded to the, you know, uh, obviously the broad national lack of a social safety net that we have in the US, which is very much the case. But but on top of that, and, and this is something that like I often explain to people, as it pertains to my own career, is that there's zero safety net in New York City. Like you can't, it's so expensive and it's so hard to live here that the idea of really taking the leap is is terrifying. And yet here we still are. <laughs> I mean, it's, I always say this as a terrible analogy really, but it's sort of like New York can be like a bad boyfriend one minute. <laughs> it's like hurling abuse at you and the next minute it's like, I love you and I'll make all your dreams come true. And you don't know whether you're coming or going sometimes. As corny as it sound sounds, I, you know, I lived in I've lived in France, I've lived in Spain, I've lived in England, my whole life predominantly in England. But I wouldn't leave New York now. You know, I just absolutely love it. There's so much going on, and when you find your rooting in here, you, especially in the music scene, I think it's impossible to find another city in the world that I can imagine being as diverse with the type of level of musicianship that you find in this city. And I'm from London, and that's not to that we don't have a rich and amazing culture and music, musicianship and community, but it's even, and even my best friends who play music professionally in London will say the same thing. But yeah, when you get to New York, you know, you have the same community, but like it's, 20 times as big <laughs> in a smaller neighborhood <laughs> d- diameter area. And um, I just, it, it, that kind of melting pot is so wonderful for the type of music that we make. I mean, it's how we met each other, really. That is the city that brought us together and the vibrancy and all the different energies and that allows us to just pour whoever we are from our different backgrounds with all the crossover and all the you know diversity within ourselves you know, be it all classical music, Bollywood, all the things I love and same for the for the two other ladies, you know, we just pour that into our music and it sort of becomes genreless. And I I still come back to the influences I I feel from New York when I first landed, meeting Sal P from Liquid Liquid and all these older people. There's this amazing community of musicians that are ageless. It doesn't matter what age you are. People are still making music with each other. And that's very different to the scene in London. It's very much about people who are your contemporaries that you're playing with. And so this was really cool to see. And this downtown culture in particular, where you've got, he he was talking about times where they're like a punk band and they'd be playing with ESG. And then 
They'd have, you know, Arthur Russell and all these classical dancers influencing them, you know, and just this amazing, and the hip hop scene and this beautiful kind of crossover of everybody influencing each other. And I feel like that culture still exists in New York. I know it's not, there's not a, there's always a golden age to look back to and it's probably not what it once was if you talk to the previous generations. But for me, it felt very much like, wow, this is incredible. You know, there's just such a diverse range of people to reach out to and, and everyone's accepting of each other. You're not siloed or kind of cast into like, oh, you, you, you sing this type of music. You stay with those people and we do this over here. It's just everyone sharing and playing together. Uh, I think it's Sabrina and Pia. Uh, like you have like a particularly, you have an especially charmed New York City story. <laughs> it really is. Um, yeah, we met in our building in the Lower East Side, seventy two Orchard Street. Um, back, gosh, I don't know, like seven or eight years ago now. But um, Pia had moved into the building above me. Um, or sorry, the the apartment directly above me with her much to your chagrin because I'd be stomping around late at night yes, and she couldn't get stomping around and singing very, very loudly. You can hear everything through those, those thin walls and the, the air vents and through the doors. So, so I knew she was a singer before I met her. I knew she mm-hmm. was a singer. Um, sessions at night. Okay. They're the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, of course. So then we, you know, finally met and became friends and that's how I met Naya. Um, and yeah. I would hear Sabrina as well in the mornings early. So after my late night writing session, I don't know if you were getting me back subconsciously, but or you just do your warm ups in the morning, don't you? But her shower is above my, you know, the apartment. It, like you could hear everything because there's these, it's a creaky old, old tenement building. So it's got like gaps in the floorboards and, her, you know, my floor is her ceiling. And if there's gaps, we're in the same room, aren't we? <laughs> And I could hear her doing her warm ups at like eight in the morning before she was going to work. And I'm like, you know, oh no. <laughs> I will say, somebody who lives on the first floor, that Pia had the advantage in that case because you do oh, have the ability to sure. stop. Are you kidding me? 100%. <laughs> definitely... She is a stomper. I'm sorry, Pia. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Okay. You walk with those heels, girl. You dig them right into that floor. You dig Thank them right you, Naya. Oh my god! I definitely lost sleep all those day, all those years for sure. In the end, she won me over because she came and bought some cookies when we like you know to properly introduce. Probably thought, well, if I can't beat her, I might as well join her. <laughs> and, uh, and then I left her a bottle, bubble, bottle of bubbles, but we still hadn't seen each other. We just knew each other were singers. And then eventually, we had a mutual friend was like, "You guys have to know each other. You're both singers." <laughs> and then I think we just had like a writing session just for fun, just like because a kind of like. I think we were lamenting about some bad boyfriend I'd had and she was laughing about some guy she was seeing and we just started writing funny joke songs. That was literally the first song we ever wrote was like a joke song about silly boyfriends. <laughs> and then we were like, this is actually kind of good. This is fun. And uh, But Naya and I also had an equally fun story. We met in Harlem um, at a party uh, through mutual friends as well. And it was this beautiful singer gave a show and we were all inspired afterwards and all these women came up to the rooftop and just to celebrate and like digest this amazing house show we'd had. And then everyone's just like, oh, I'm a singer too and start singing together and harmonizing and like little birds on the rooftop as well. So it just, yeah, the minute we all met each other, I guess this, it was like the sound and the singing started happening straight away, didn't it? Sure did. 
Pia's from London. Where's where's everybody else from? I'm from the DC area. And I'm from upstate New York, from Rochester. Rochester in particular makes you know makes sense, obviously, you know, coming down to, to the city. But what mm-hmm. specifically what brought everybody here? Was it was it music? Music, yeah. I I used to be in a singing group couple singing groups ago I used to be in um, my first singing group um, we actually moved from Maryland DC area to New York to pursue our dreams and then I went to uh, the new school university in in New York so um, music definitely drew me in you studied music at new school uh, jazz and contemporary music yeah was that helpful Oh yeah, because you know, uh, you know who went to that school. Um, Robert Glasper was graduating the year I came in there. Like uh, Jesse Boykins the third, like my friend Daniel Jones, the Strickland brothers, like were all there when I was there. So it was like the best community, and and even the the teachers were still gigging musicians. So it was just a really great place to be. I think Bilal had. Uh, graduated the year before I came. So I was so upset, but he did sit in one of my classes, my improv class. He came and uh, sat in and, and, and we all went in the improv circle. It was really, really, really cool. That's cool. So yeah, definitely, definitely worth it just because of the network and the teachers. I had some, a vocal coach that changed my life. Like she totally stripped me of my, of the way that I had been singing all my life and built me up from the from the bottom up. Like I literally in her class did not sing a song. It was all about placement and understanding my voice. And just, I just did warm ups the entire time I was with her, but it changed, it changed me, my life for the better. So yeah, it was definitely worth it. (laughs) I very much am not a singer. I'm always interested in that. What what do you mean? You know, when you say you were a different kind of singer or you were singing differently, what was the difference? I had grown up singing and using because singing is really muscle memory. So I had been using a placement in this area. Let's just say placement in this area. She's <laughs> pointing to her face. I'm pointing to all of my sinuses, all this, the uvula, all this stuff. I have been singing where I was, how I was bringing my air up, how I was, you know, I was straining. I probably was belting in a way that, that wasn't healthy and left me with a limited range because I was not singing correctly. So she basically made me forget how to sing that way and built and built me up from, from a a different placement. And, and in order to find this placement, like she had diagrams she had visualization tools. She had all that kind of stuff to help me find the exact placement where she wanted me to be. And even when I first started that, it was still hard. I couldn't get the sound that I was happy with. And so it kind of took years for me to kind of just be with my voice and be with myself to figure out the way that I wanted to sound. It takes a lot of practice, a lot of being with your voice and like intimately and just being willing to, um, to step outside of your comfort zone and try different ways of doing things. So she just really helped me with that. Sabrina, you moved to the city for music? I did. Yeah. I, um, I guess I, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Rochester and just always, always for some reason knew that I wanted to be in New York 
like from a young age. Um, I think I clung to the fact that my dad's from Queens. A lot of my family members, like his his parents and his grandparents, and same on my mom's side, you know, have roots to 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 Queens and Brooklyn in particular. Um, so it was just in my. I don't know. It was, it was just in me that I, I knew I wanted to be here. I knew I was going to find the love of my life here, which sounds cliche. I knew I was going to find my, my musical community. And, um, you know, it definitely took me a while to find that, but it finally happened and I could not be, yeah, more grateful for finding these two and just, yeah, I don't know, just being able to do what we love now in a way that just feels so natural and it's just so effing fun. <laughs> thanks for taking me out of my emo moment i was like oh i might cry and then she's like being fun all right okay here we go <laughs> that's the new yorker in there. yeah I, I went to syracuse and every you know every summer i would find an internship like random like paid little things just so i could be here and then finally graduated and just moved here straight away and kind of haven't left i think pia alluded to this a little bit but you know i'm, I'm always interested to get your take. I think, I think I know the answer from all three of you, but whether, whether it's necessary to move to a big city, especially a city like New York, which again is for like a lot of reasons, very difficult to make a, a living in, you know, those, I guess those, those young artists that, that, that Naya was alluding to earlier, would you, would you recommend moving to, you know, whether it's like a, a New York or LA or London? I don't think everyone needs to be so city centric at all. I think there's, there's so much value in having space and time and using the community that you have and the, you know, support networks that you have and, you know, give yourself a break. I, I honestly, if I had known what it would be moving to New York, I wouldn't have done it. I didn't move here for music. Actually. I um, worked in politics for many years. I always wanted to be doing music full time, but you know, kind of just also just felt like I needed to, um, see out my career working with various politicians, including the leader of the Green Party. And I was in parliament in her office for many years. I worked for NGOs and um, I just, there was two terms of the Tories. That's the Conservative Party. And I just couldn't take it anymore. I did not want to be in England under another Conservative government. I was a policy officer at the time. And it's just, you're redundant because everything you write, they just take it and turn it into their own nonsense um and so i felt like i had to go and do something else and i i was born in the states i have dual nationality um as i always tell the girls my mum's always like do passports and still nobody wants to marry you (laughs) 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 i'm gonna i have to go and use this and go and see what i could do in new york and homelessness is a huge problem here so i was working for a um a think tank called the institute for children poverty and homelessness and um, they're based in the East Village. They're an amazing organization. And and then joined this punk band I was telling you about with Sal P, which is like a collective almost. And then and then Naya and I, I met some other people. Naya and I joined another band. And that band got signed to a, a very cool label run by Leon Michaels, who really changed my life and kind of just gave me so much encouragement um, and, a, and the chance to like sing in Hindi and find my own voice and be comfortable with being who I was and 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 then from there, never really looked back. And as soon as I met Sab, you know, it was just like this meeting of minds. And I knew that Naya would love her as much as I did. And it's just been so true for us, hasn't it? Just like, you know, when you have two friends who you're like, I love you both. And I know you're going to love each other even more than you love me. <laughs> That's pretty much the way it went. <laughs> so, um, 
but yeah, I don't, I don't think e- anyone needs to move to a big city in order to, to make their art at all. Um, I think that's kind of an obnoxious idea that people need to be city centric. Like, like we were talking about the diversity and that's to do with community and experience as well. And, um, especially uh, there are so many tools online and so many ways to make music. For me, I'm just, I thrive when I'm around the energy of people and I don't write songs by myself that sound half as good as the songs I write when I'm with other people and sharing energy and bringing something to the table that they're receiving well and that encourages me and you know I I need that validation in the room but also like you 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 want that joy that thing of being close to people and if you can find that in your local communities or wherever you are that's an amazing thing not everybody needs to do that you know my former partner, he really thrives on making his songs in a very quiet space by himself. He needs a lot of alone time. And he's he's jealous of me and I'm jealous of him that, like, you know, he could sit by himself and come up with something. No way. I need the girls. <laughs> it's not going to come otherwise. Like, how does it just come out of you by yourself, mate? <laughs> but, you know, everybody's different and you feed off different things. So, yeah, I would I would never advise anybody to move to a big city without some sort of safety net or game plan because it can be so hard and that could discourage you. That could be the most discouraging thing. You bring up an interesting point too as as far as being in the room. And, and this is something that, that has always fascinated me and I, I can't quite figure it out. I don't know, maybe, maybe somebody can explain this in a way that my dumb non-musical brain can get but what how is two-part and three-part harmony different and just in terms of the experience of singing together you know the impact that it has what is what is bringing i guess the third person would have been nigh in, in this case specifically what what is bringing that third person into the group how does that sort of change and i guess elevate the dynamic i mean it's fantastic. It's it's just way better. Like it's like another you know it's another texture. It's another like we can essentially create chords like with each other. Like it's three part. Just I don't know. There's so much more you can do with the vocal arrangement. There's so many um, more interesting layers you can throw in a dissonant note. You know what I mean? Like it's just I don't know. It's like it's more challenging maybe to create something. It's I mean not really for us. It just like sort of pours out. But like. Yeah, I just think it's it's a little more interesting and and it's it's just really fun when like those three parts really lock in, you know. That's what I would say. I really like what you said about the textures. Um to for me that is really what's most beautiful about having three different textures, singing three different notes and giving three different um, perspectives, if you will, with our voices or feel or vibe. It just, you know, and it, and the, the chemistry that we're able to have with one another um, is just quite enjoyable. Like it just makes it really fun and just um, the synergy that, that we feel when we're on stage or when we're writing uh, or arranging um, really kind of just, it's like with the, I don't want to say cookie crumb, but it just keeps us going and it just pulls us and it just encourages, encourages us to try new things and to try different things. I think, I think that's the power of three, to be honest. Um, yeah. Who says three's a crowd? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Do you know what? We all actually grew up singing three part harmonies, you know, might not have been with each other, but that's the first thing I, I was in choir. So with the other two, you know, and it's, you know, 
female choirs for me in particular. I'm not sure if you guys had mixed choirs, but it's always that um, soprano, mezzo soprano, alto vibe from day from day dot. And um, there's something so fun about not having to be in a place where you have to learn the parts. You know, I I'm the weakest link when it comes to you know harmonies and arrangements. Um, I think Sabrina and I just come so naturally and. You know, Sab in particular does a lot of the arranging um, for for Prism. She did a lot of the all the arrangements, pretty much for for the harmonies. Um, and for the second record, it's more we've been writing together in the room more, and you know, just by nature of it not being COVID and the way that we wrote, so it just pours out of everyone naturally, and everyone just finds their kind of tone and and complements each other, and it's just so refreshing to not have any competitiveness. That's like. It's just like this encouragement and support and we can just interchange and interweave and and you can finish the song so much quicker. You you know, you have an idea and if you have to graft at an idea for a long time, you could lose interest and just walk away from that song. If it doesn't feel good, you know, it's hard to push yourself to finish things sometimes. And when you have your two best mates, essentially, making everything to sound so much better, that's so encouraging. It makes you want to keep finishing everything really fast and what are we going to do tomorrow? And and it sounds a bit corny, doesn't it? But it, it's taken a long time to find that in my life. So I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed to say that. Does everybody sort of have their natural range? And, and does that determine like how you, where you fit into the puzzle? The two of them can just sing so high. So, I mean, it's, there's no chance that I can sing that high anymore. Once upon a time. <laughs> but um, so I, you know, there's no way. And it's so amazing because sometimes if I want to, I can hear something, uh, you know, but you can't get it out. And it's just incredible to have, it's like having the tool of an instrument, but it's your best friend's voice. (laughs) And then, and then, so it's just like, you can finish and flourish things. And, but so I think, you know, you two have a pretty similar range, so high um, and so low, really diverse actually goes all the way up the scale. They just give me the low parts because I can't do the high ones. (laughs) Also, Pia has this beautiful uh, warmth to her voice that just, uh, that suits the low. That's what I can do, but thanks, Naya. That was sweet. <laughs> true. You can't compliment them for five minutes and then not expect a compliment back. That's thank not you. okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. buying it. <laughs> you can hear it. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. There's a very funny and I think very like real uh, onion headline from a, a, a number of years ago that it was something along the lines of um, ska band outnumbers audience, which is like <laughs> obviously something that you risk when there's a lot of people and it's, <laughs> and it, so it's the three of you. And then is it, is it eight piece on top of the three? No, with us. Okay. With- it's eight together, but, but that's still a really big band and that's still a really, uh, you know, I, I guess big, business it kind of orchestrate it's, it is a lot of work but it is it, it the people that we've chosen to work with make it easier you have to find your people don't you and we're super lucky we've just had so many friends who've known us for a long time and know how we operate and yeah it's a big band but it's also to, to us we would never compromise that sound never you know would we ever we we take we take a lot of analog instruments on the road i don't think there's that many touring bands that carry a whirly and <laughs> and a clavinet is it yours that goes on tour yeah yeah you've seen it there she is 
Um, she's given me given me a few problems recently, but she's she's back in the in the mix now. Thank you to my dear friends. In, uh... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think we've just wanted you know worked at this for so long, and we finally found our sound and our people. And it's like you know we don't want to compromise that. We don't want to sing to a track. We don't want to you know we we want to make it sound the way it was recorded essentially. Um, and yeah, definitely, you know, create some challenges here and there, but you know, we're, we've kind of committed all to sort of accepting that so that we can, yeah, put our best foot forward really. I mean, I'm guessing there's an extent to which financially that you have to be very picky about the shows that you choose and the tour that you do when you've got that many people involved. We're, we're so lucky. We actually just signed with a booking agent who's been a long friend of mine for years. And it's like, you know, when your friends are like the top of their profession and you never would ask them favors, you would never suggest to them, Hey, would you take me on? Cause it's like cringe, you know, they don't want to be asked and you just know in your heart. You don't want them to feel like they're obligated to do you a favor. No. And it creates so much awkwardness between friendships. Cause like you, you know, people don't want to feel used. That's the, the last thing. So never ever would I ask. Um, but you know, you're secretly hoping in your heart, well, one day maybe I'll be good enough that he'll ask us. And it happened last week when we signed with a rival artist and our good friend John Bongiorno, who, you know, Naya and I met him years ago because we were backing singing for Chicano Batman, which is this great band, if you don't know them. Yeah, and they're, they're like our brothers and um, they just adore Sab as well now. And um, she, they're like brothers to her too. And we co-wrote Pink Roses on Prism with Bardo, um, who's the lead singer and just kind of maverick music maker, really. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's been an amazing journey. And like I said, it all comes down to the community again. And John is so sweet and so amazing at his job and looks after so many incredible bands and who, some of whom we're really close to as well. And we've watched their careers grow. And they, you know, they often credit him for having changed their lives. And he's so thoughtful about where he puts you on the road and doesn't want you to burn out, but also knows where to push and... So we have a really heavy year ahead of us um, on the road, exciting, exciting opportunities, but also picking dates that work around everybody's lifestyle and, and going to make it work. It's excited for us. I wasn't familiar with the Gorilla Girls until I was reading up on you. It seems like a fascinating group. What was the sense of kinship there? What drew you to them? Uh, well, we we were introduced to one of the original five Um Gorilla Girls, and she, I don't know, she was just, we, we started hanging out with her, and she was telling us all these really interesting stories about sort of, you know, the work that they were doing and that, and, you know, how they were using art for activism um, back in New York City, you know, in the 80s. So it was just, yeah, it was just super inspiring, you know, and um, her alias is Alice Neal, but she was. She, yeah, she was also in the music scene. She was friends with Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. And yeah, she just sort of, yeah, I guess really inspired us and, and just hearing their story. And, um, you know, I think Pia always says, this, you know, w- we wanted to say something more in our music and it's not about reinventing the wheel. It's kind of, you know, we wanted to take our learnings from the generation before us and, and you know, use our voice in our own way. So they were particularly an inspiration for forget me not. And especially the music video that we did for that one. I think that advocacy piece within our work and our music, you know, we don't want it to sound like we're giving anyone a sermon, 
it should it should be uplifting and we should and we want to use our voice for for good and for the things that we want to say and that's the most powerful platform we have and as women that's we've worked really hard to be able to get up on the stage and have that space to say what we believe in and um kind of campaign through our music without it seeming like something you know like boring policy meeting <laughs> it's much more fun when it's a disco song and getting everyone dancing and and maybe there's a message there that will reach people. Mm-hmm. 